Well, hello everyone. It is another episode of That Wings Guy, and we have a just phenomenal panel uh, for you for this episode. We're recording this on January the 4th. It's starting at about 7.45 Eastern Time, and today's a big day for me. Today is my 25th anniversary of my academy class convening, and that is relevant to this topic. It's also, I guess, the 10th anniversary of my this stint as a college professor starting as well, because I have a class starting tomorrow. And that be 10 years of that. Um, but we have two, actually, everybody on the panel's first timer tonight. I know all of you, so it's like, it doesn't seem like you're new to me, but this is all your first time uh, being on the show. So I'm excited to always have new people on the show. I'll, I'm excited to talk to each one of you individually. So in a group, it's going to be really fun. And uh, we'll get started and get everybody to introduce themselves before we throw the topic out tonight. First, Miss Lou Ann Hamlin. Well, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's been a while since I've I've had the pleasure of of your company, either virtually or or in person. So I'm thank you. Happy to be here. Tell everyone about yourself. We're a retired police officer out of Michigan. Uh, we're also celebrating our 25th year of being in business. Luca Tactical Training mm -hmm. here. Um, I was recruited to come back to the academy uh, right after I graduated to come back and teach firearms, and I did so at two different police academies. Uh, seven years each and in service and I currently still teach at a national level and train with a lot of police academy instructors so I'm still pretty um, up to speed on what's happening and and what's not um, unfortunately. thank you up next Mr. Greg Elephants thank you for having me Lee uh, I'm Greg a uh, retired police officer out of Ohio, did 25 years there, 13 of those years as a full-time tactical training officer for my agency. Uh, I did all of the pre-academy training for the officers. I did a few stints as an academy trainer, and then I got the officers right after got out of the academy for two weeks uh, to correct all the errors that the academy instructors uh, created with them. Uh, so one uh, I run response training now, uh, trained all over the country, gun stuff and stuff and medical stuff. All right. And if you're familiar with Greg, you know that he is prone to travel all over the world and he is international at this moment on international internet. So if he's cutting in or out or whatever, just please bear with him. <clears throat> all right. Lane. My name is Lane Thayer. I work for the Iowa Law Enforcement Academy. I've been here just short of two years. Prior to that, I worked for the Ames, Iowa Police Department for just under 10 years. Did all 10 years on patrol. Got to do kind of everything I wanted to do there. And then they called and said, hey, do you want to come and do PT and fight and shoot and all that fun stuff with all the baby cops? And I said, that sounds incredible. And here I am. Seth. Uh, Seth Thompson. I just recently retired from a small sheriff's office out west. Started an LE business back in 95 as a reserve. I've been a park ranger and most recently just finished up a long full-time career with a small department of less than 15 deputies. Uh, I've been working for our state academy as an adjunct instructor for firearms since about 2011. And I assist with some other use of force instruction and scenarios and things. So, uh, uh, Seth County can be described as picturesque. <laughs> sometimes there are more bison than people <laughs> uh, i actually got stuck in a bison traffic jam driving through seth county one time and i have the pictures to prove it 
true story. I'm, um, I'm sitting. I'm sitting literally about five miles away from a large herd of a thousand yeah. plus of them. So, yeah. uh, wasn't there like a the first deployment of some sort of medical device or something thanks to someone trying to pet the pretty buffalo or bison? Yes. So when I was a seasonal park ranger for a state agency, uh, I had to use one of our downed officer kits on someone that had a severe abdominal injury from coming too close to a bull bison. Um, they did live. We put them on the helicopter and they survived. But apparently I have allegedly the only post bison use of one of those downed officer kits so far. <laughs> but they look so peaceful, like they just want to be petted. Like a lot of people, you know, you get on their bad side or, you know, get into their space and they'll tell you to move off in their own way. Yeah. What's the worst that could happen with a 2000 pound animal gets angry with you? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh -huh. It literally weighs a ton and it can run faster than a human being. So. All right. All right. So the entire panel here tonight, we've all been involved in pre-academy training for officers, uh, academy, actual academy training. Uh, firearms training for officers and then the immediate post academy uh, trying to fix some problems that may arise from their little sojourn away from the agency and of course the long-term training aspects of trying to deal with, with, with that as well. Uh, Lane and I were having a conversation uh, as he was working on a curriculum project for his agency um, what should be in the basic firearms curriculum for an academy and then we got to talking about sustainment training when they when they leave and i'm of the opinion that all supervision up to a certain level needs to be supervised by an instructor so we're making sure that everything that is being practiced is uh, is being fundamentally correct because once they learn it wrong it is harder to fix it than it is to teach them uh, correctly. And so Lane asked, well, what's that level when they can be turned loose? And I gave my answer, but then I thought that was a pretty good topic for discussion. So kind of the first thing we're going to go around the, the room tonight is uh, would like for each of you to kind of what do you think are the key things that need to be in a basic firearms academy curriculum? What are some things that we probably shouldn't be wasting time on? And then if you kind of agree or disagree on that whole thing on supervision up to a certain level, then we'll come back around on and discuss what level we think should people should be turned loose. All right. So Leanne, Luann, you were up first. I think that it's it's interesting. Um I've I've consulted with some some folks who have had some female officers who have who have had performance problems over the years. And one of the reoccurring things is uh, when they'll send me the paperwork for me to do a, a consult, it'll always state in there that the officer was given 200 rounds to practice on her own. And um, at one point I said, please don't do that anymore because now it's just 200 more reps that you know we could just better use those 200 rounds with exactly what you're talking about adult supervision. And um, so I'm, I'm in 100% agreement of that. Um, and it should be done immediately. Um, oftentimes I'll have a shooter that's been having problems now for years, or maybe it's just 2000 reps that are poor, 
or 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 twenty years, but somewhere in there, um, the, someone's failed them, um, where there should have been a little bit more one on one, upfront. Right. What do you think should be must be included in a basic academy curriculum? Well, I like the idea of um, front loaded remediation drills. So it's a little bit more of a self-diagnostic tool. And um, if they start to have X problem, then they can plug in Y solution. And it takes a little bit more time. Um, and some instructors are a little impatient when it comes to those types of things. But I'm just a believer that if you can spend a little bit more time up front, making sure that the shooter understands what they're doing, rather than just yes, sir, and no, sir, um, I think there's some value in that. All right. I got to ask, explain front loader remediation drills. Um, well, Lane, I took Lane through this drill. He attended a class that we did, and it was with the rifle understanding uh, sight bore offset, for example. And we just spend a lot of time in the beginning getting people to understand math. And what the offset is at X distance versus what it what it is at Y distance and how those things change. And it's very visual. Um, it's uh, it's experiential learning. And uh, it, again, it takes more time, but once they learn it, um, then they'll never forget it. And that's just information that I've been given over the years, that drill, that one drill, you know, I've never forgotten my my offsets at various distances. So. Again, it takes a little bit more time, but it's just, a, in my opinion, uh, a more adult learner strategy. Cool. I, I'm personally of the opinion that the AR-15 is ill-suited for domestic United States law enforcement use because of mechanical offset. It, it, you know, it takes some time. I mean, that's a big topic. That's a big statement, mm -hmm. you know, uh, that you've just made. Um, maybe, maybe for another podcast, uh, yeah, but that, that's, that's a, that. yeah, that, that's that's a big, big, big bell alarm bell for me. Uh, when I see it, see that out there, and there's no getting there's no getting it back. It's that's where we're at. I wish that when the military had adopted them, every U.S. carbine and military uh, M1 carbine in service would have been given to FBI marshals on down the line. And that was what we would have thought that we needed to be carrying. But uh, uh, well, I, I find it interesting that there are some academies yeah. that are not addressing the AR platform in the basic academy because it's too much. It's cognitive yeah. overload and they address it when they get hired to their own department. And agencies prefer that as well. Yeah, uh, Georgia is now flipping. They're taking shotgun diminishing it in the academies and adding rifle in but it's just a familiarization it's not a, a true thing uh now there's some talk about some upcoming changes to the academy where there may be additional days added for rifle training but yeah um that's we could like again that could be a whole nother podcast uh, greg i like luann's idea of the self remediation that's generally how I start a lot of my classes. Uh, when I would get them right after the academy, I would have them shoot a basic group, uh, just, you know, a slow fire marksmanship kind of group at a B8, and then start the very first 
remediation lesson I would teach them is, hey, if you are shooting low left, you're probably doing this or this. If you are shooting high, you're probably doing this to get them in the habit of analyzing each of their own shots and fixing themselves uh, with round that they buy. I'm really in favor of that. I think um, a lot of academies screw up by lumping all the firearms training into a week or two week period and not through the entire academy. If I was running the show, I would, even if it was only dry fire or draw practice or something, I would have them handling their firearms for a shorter period of time almost every day. Uh, I concur with that completely. One issue we have here is that not all of the academies have their own range and it runs into scheduling problems. And uh, mm -hmm. that's probably the biggest hindrance to being able to spread it out. Yeah. But okay. even if it just came down to dry fact, supervised dry practice, I would be in favor of that thing to help people out you know most of most of the new recruits that the police agents are getting now have minimal firearms training and just that that familiarization and getting comfortable with a weapon spread out over the length of the academy rather than lumped into a small time period i think would make a big difference in helping them a lot better all right Wayne. uh it's interesting to me as I sit here and I, you know, look at the screen and I hear you guys uh, talk. It, it strikes me that I certainly have far, far less experience in law enforcement and in training than anyone else in this group. So I'm not sure that I'm qualified to be speaking to this. Uh, what I have seen consistently coming out of the academy as a field training officer and then now in the academy as a trainer is that if the officer doesn't have the basic foundational skills that they need to be successful with any tool, not just a firearm, but just any tool at all, they're not going to magically be able to apply that to these complicated situations that they find in the real world when there's real people who don't like them and are giving them some kind of uh, pushback. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I took a classroom with Luann earlier or late last year, a couple of months ago, and I really enjoyed a lot of what she did talk about with these front loader mediation drills. How can we get these recruits to the point of being able to know foundationally what they have to do to be successful with this weapon. And then like Greg is saying, practice it consistently over and over and over again in a supervised fashion, because once they have those skills down, then I'm a little more uh, ready to say, okay, I've seen you demonstrate this correctly multiple times. And I'm okay with you going home on the weekend to practice because it's, it's very common for us in the academy here for a recruit to say to me, hey, I'm going to go home. I'm going to go practice. What should I do? And at a certain point, especially later in the program, I want to foster that. I want to encourage them, yes, take the time. Yep, practice, go to the range. I love that you're willing to spend your time doing that and you're not burned out from 40 hours or 40 plus hours of training in a week. Um, but like, like we've kind of talked about, the danger is that they don't have that correct technique and the good amount of reps on it. Yes, they're going to get bad reps. They're going to build some of those bad habits and we're going to have problems. Uh, as far as what specifically, that's that's a hard thing for me to come down and say it should be this or that. Um, to me, the kind of the catch-all answer is basic firearms manipulations. They should be able to always keep the gun running no matter what, and then know how to fix any problems. If something does arrive a malfunction, they shoot to empty when they should not have. Okay, how can I get somewhere 
it's a better position, get more ammunition in the gun, and get back to what I was doing. Uh, then I can start to transition them into more training of, okay, you've learned how to manipulate the gun, shoot the gun. Now, how can I teach you where you should be standing? Where can you get to a better position? What's the better course of action? And you have more mental space to make those decisions, then you're not entirely focused on just shooting. I don't know that I have a, you know, a blow by blow, hey, they have to have this in the academy. It's a little bit more, at what point can I say they have enough to be able to practice on their own? And now I can apply that into scenarios. And that kind of mirrors off of what Greg was saying. I think a lot of that can be accomplished with blue guns that aren't costing yeah. us ammunition mm -hmm. that we can do not only firing range, we can do those anywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, we can go into a parking lot somewhere and do that. We can do it in a hallway. We can do, you know, practice room clearing. We can do a lot of that stuff without expending anything other than manpower hours. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's going to go into when I get to, to my response to this, where I'm going to get to, but Seth. Um, and I would echo what Greg said about unblocking the Academy training, if possible. I know logistically it's a challenge for some folks, but our Academy 12, 13, 14 years ago went from the old fashioned, get your act together and you're not making house payments unless you get this together in five days to four hours of instruction every week throughout the entire Academy cycle. And, you know, there's benefits there because, you know, people recover from that better. Uh, there's more time for remediation, et cetera. Um, and I get it. That's a logistical challenge for a lot of folks, but we saw dividends out of it. Um, and the other thing that Greg talked about, dry practice is how we start every training session. Um, there's a dry practice block where we prime skills, demo skills, add in skills, and it's dry, dry manipulation, dry presentation. Uh, and then we eventually add in dummies, dummy ammo and, you know, practice manipulation of that, cycling the gun, keeping the gun running. And again, like I said, we do it in steps. We demo, we prime, you know, and then the next time we go through it. So, um, and, you know, by the time they're done, they've done hundreds and hundreds of repetition of the presentation, the draw stroke you know, operating the gun, things like that. And it paid dividends for us. You know, we just don't see people bobbling stuff in live fire like we used to. You know, people are much more confident with running their equipment. Yeah. Uh, I've been struck over the last few days of how different the Academy is now from when I started it 25 years ago. Uh, yesterday, I taught them about active shooter and our active killer in response. And I had to tell them, guys, I was in field training when Columbine happened. Yeah, I had just been told weeks before that we just set up a perimeter and the SWAT team's mm -hmm. going to magically appear and fix this. To I went home, I was on day shift FTO phase when Columbine happened. And I came home and turned on my TV and saw it and actually called back to the squad room. Say, hey, guys, you need to turn on the TV. Look and see what's going on out in Colorado. And, you know, six months later, they were teaching us these five-man diamond formations to move up and down the hallways and everything. It was so complicated that, you know, it just wasn't, wasn't feasible. And then, of course, now we're starting to move on to finally realizing in some places that it's the guys on, that arrive on scene have to go stop the killing and stop the dying. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's going to be those people that are there that go do it. They need to go do it right now. 
one of the other big changes is that when I went through the academy, the only time we put on our duty belts, you know, the first time we put them on in the academy and started working with the guns was range week. Uh, now they are wearing a duty belt the entire academy and they're issued a blue gun on the first morning mm-hmm. and they're carrying that. So we, you know, there is that ability to start doing dry work right from the start. One tendency I see is they start looking at the number of rounds that was allotted to each student. And we did X number of drills with X number of rounds. I don't necessarily know that round count is indicative of quality training. And what I typically see is we run a student through so many drills and then we run them on a call course. And then we've, once we grade the first test, now we see who's in trouble and we start trying to fix them instead of doing like what Lou Ann was saying. We teach them right from the start and then we start putting the components all together. Uh, I was part of that group that went out and worked with Larry Mudgett several years ago, uh, learning all his skip loading techniques and the like. And I've kind of already had a program on the way. Lane, you went through one of my early trigger management classes, and then I, I modified the first two hours of that after uh, spending time with, with, with Mr. Mudgett. I tell all the students that I'm going to cut your ammo budget drastically. I'm just going to increase your dummy round budget. But that's a cost that once you make it, you're not a, costing you anything to expend it. And I think there's lots of things that we could be doing the Imperial way through dry fire, dry presentations, use of dummy rounds and the like from the outset and teaching those drills. Uh, and you, 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 you struck a core with me when you said front loaded remediation drills. My whole mantra of my trigger management class is I'm trying to teach you to be your own best coach. So that you know what's going on, so then you know how to fix it. Because I distinctly remember the instructor that came to help us during range week. It was an agency guy that came basically just to hang out on the range. And he stood behind me and was like, Wayne's you're jerking the trigger. Okay, sir, how do I stop it? Well, stop jerking the trigger. Thank <laughs> God, thank God you were here. Uh, we never would have made it through this. And I made it through the academy shooting an 82 and an 84 and an 80 as a passing score on our state course in the state call then. And then thankfully I managed to finally get to a coach that knew what he was doing an army marksmanship guy that jumped to me immediately to 96s and 98s. And then I got up to the 99s, sixes and hundreds and the like. Um, all of that to say this, Do we think that maybe that front-loaded remediation and that individual coaching isn't taking places because, in general, the instructors that are out there doing that aren't qualified to do it? I think absolutely correct. I can remember back in my I went through as a student, we had a problem shooter who is now a police chief. I'll, I'll let you draw your conclusions about that. But uh, the guy wasn't passing the qualification for it, and he was in the stall next to me. And I remember the instructor pulling a hammer from the armorer's table, walking behind the problem shooter and holding the hammer up behind his head, saying, if you jerk the trigger one more time, I'm going to hit your head with this hammer. And that was his way of doing that. Because that's not going to cause any kind of anticipation whatsoever, is it? Ridiculous. 
the one thing I'm appreciative so much of Larry Mudgett's program was, is it gave me a language to tell people what I've been, what I knew all along, but I just didn't know how to tell people. Uh, Lane, you went out and took his class. I think Seth, I know he came to your state. Did you go and do the program when he came? I haven't, but I've had uh, Larry Mudgett light through my mm -hmm. boss and uh -huh. we've adopted the big components of that program. And it's, again, it's paid dividends. Um, it's it like you say it, it gives us a language to talk to people about how the shot process happens and how they can become aware of what's going on with it so yeah. uh, news flashed everyone out there jerking the trigger is not what causes the low left shot for a right-handed shooter it's tightening the grip as you press the trigger that's what causes the low left shot for a right-handed shooter. I was always told that a high shot came from looking over the sights at the target. No, that comes from relaxing your grip as you're pressing the trigger. Any change in the grip pressure as the trigger is being pressed is going to cause a target error. It's that simple. And once people learn that and accept it and learn what it feels like when they're doing it, it's not that hard to teach them everything else. Um, and that's where those trigger drills that Larry Mudgett teaches are invaluable, mm -hmm. you know, for Absolutely. letting people build that self-diagnosis instead of hollering at them, you're doing this, you're doing that, they get to experience it. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Army Marksmanship Unit guy that, uh, that helped me did basically what I know now are Larry Mudgett's trigger drills with me on the line because he told me to shoot a, con a control pair and I you know shot one perfect and the next one was low left and he came by and said wings you're jerking the trigger I'm like darn I'm proud of you guys just saying that like it's a magic fix <laughs> he's like well calm down scooter you know turn around aim at that bullet hole that's already in your this where you want it to be in the target and he pressed the trigger on my gun and tore out the same hole he said, put your finger on the trigger. And I put it on there. He touched my finger. And he pressed the trigger. He mm -hmm. said, now you do it. And like all of those shots were a cloverleaf pattern. And he said, effing magic, isn't it? And walked off. Only he said the actual word. And I jumped 10 points on my qualification score with that one bit of coaching. It was amazing. Um, the single most important thing that I think needs to be improved or we need to accomplish as part of basic training is teaching the students to get the weapon out of this retention holster and at in a proper grip and presentation in a timely manner. And I think from a level three, if we can get them doing it in one seven five, I'm jumping for joy. I really want it one five. Um, I think that's the biggest area that I see is I see students that just taking them two and a half seconds to get that first shot uh, on the target. If it's on the target. So, Lou Ann, what do you think is the single biggest thing? Well, did you want me to comment on what you just said? Or Absolutely. Do you want Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I, I think you can do whatever Lou Ann wants to do. I, you know, a general uh, urgency to get to the gun in the first place. I think they have a, some of them that I've dealt with. They just don't, uh, they don't understand the concept of time. I guess that would be you know, what does a quarter second look like? Mm -hmm. What could be happening inside of that quarter second or those three quarters of a second while you're, you know, finishing your cigarette or your text before you're getting, you know, to the gun, basically. So there's no sense of urgency. And so I think getting 
it's an emotional response that you have to, um, whether it's making them laugh through humor or getting them to understand uh, what could what could be happening to them by them taking an extra second to get their job done. So sometimes the psychology of surviving uh, a gunfight or sports psychology, um, you know, that I think that's really important. Um, and there, you know, there a lot, a lot of them just aren't in a big hurry to get that job done. And and uh, so I think bringing a little uh, realism to them or some other instructional strategy is helpful. Um, and I think what what I've experienced recently with folks, and I'm going to go, I'm on my 30th year of teaching, so I'm going to say the, the last decade, from what I've seen the last decade, are instructors that really have not a lot of experience teaching. They have experience with wearing a cool pin on a uniform that says fire instructor. They have their favorite clipboard, their red hat. And they can check off a, a, a P or an F like it's nobody's business. But when you ask them serious pointed questions like, like you're asking, they they can't go there because they're they're not there uh, intellectually, um, experientially. Uh, they just don't have the experience. And I've unfortunately with my gray hair, I've offended a number of them. Uh, at a couple of conferences re recently, and I had a kid, he was complaining about the shooters that are coming out of the academy. And I am asking him, how often are you training? He says, well, really only qualifying. How long have you been an instructor? He says, 10 years. I said, so you're qualifying once a year? And he said, yeah. I said, so you don't have 10 years. You have 10 reps. And that's a problem. Mm -hmm. So it's the... In-service training, it, it, it's almost like a double standard. They're going to complain about their shooters not, not practicing, but yet over here, they're not practicing either. They're not donating their time at, I don't know, TACCON or something, at a conference. You know, they're not out. They're not hungry. They're not curious themselves. Um, I used to volunteer at the Reserve Police Academy. And, um, you know, again, you talk about paying dividends. Most people will ask you questions that you never imagined anyone would ever think about. And some of the people that I've been training with the last three or four years, non-cop types, they'll do the same thing. And so it will really, if they're not honing their craft, um, it's really, it's hypocritical for them to expect their folks to drive fire or to watch a YouTube video or, you know, to go to the range on their own time. I think that's a core problem are the instructors. Or we tell them that they need to be doing dry fire practice and then we don't teach them how to do dry fire practice. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if you're if you're not a fan of the penny drill, I'm a fan of the penny drill because it's mm -hmm. proof. You know, if you can't keep a penny on top of the front sight, that's one cent. I'm not gonna give you 26 cent round if you can't keep one cent on top of your front sight, we press the trigger to the rear. And so you dry fire with proof. And there's, you can have fun and games with that for cash and prizes if you want to make it fun for the, the people, uh, competitions and all those things. But I mean, that it's telling. Bore lasers are telling with dry fire mags. I mean, there, there's a lot of people are visual learners still coming into this profession. 
and they can see their performance, what they're doing here and how it affects what's going on downrange. Yeah. Doesn't she say smart things? Isn't she just fun to be around? Greg? A lot of people that would not agree with that. <laughs> well, they would be wrong. <laughs> when Dave Spalding and Greg Ellifritz both told me that Luann Hamlin is someone I needed to be paying attention to, I decided that was probably somebody I need to be paying attention to. And you've never disappointed. So, Greg? You know, you talked about, you know, being happy when your students were able to get a shot off in 1.75 or 1 1.5. I, I think the biggest thing I saw when I was working with people at the, the reason they weren't getting those lower times and those accurate hits quickly was they weren't familiar with the basics of the shooting. They were still consciously thinking about the action of drawing and gripping mm -hmm. that. It was not unconscious competence. They they were wasting time thinking about, are my thumbs in the right position? What did the instructor tell me about to look at the front sight? All of that should be unconscious competence that they don't have to think about. And when we can get them to that level, the speed and the accuracy comes a lot quicker when they're not wasting time thinking about what did he say about grip pressure with the right hand versus the left and all of that. All of that should be so well practiced by the time they graduate the academy that they don't need to be thinking about it when they're drawing their gun. And uh, it isn't. Uh, you know, I, I think some of the academies that we sent our people to did a pretty good job, but I couldn't say, you know, in, in the 13 years that I remediated those I don't think I got anybody that was really well trained right out of the academy. They just weren't familiar enough with their gun to be able to reach the quick shots and decent accuracy level because they were too busy thinking about everything. Yeah. They're completely overwhelmed. Uh, and that's one of the theories or concepts that I've been grasping or realizing here lately is they're using every bit of brain processing power they have just to get the gun out of the holster. And when we keep trying to coach them and tell them other things, they're still stuck in getting the gun out of the holster. And that's why I think it's such a big deal. That needs to be our, our prominent thing as far as that's a skill we can accomplish before we ever go to the range. Yes. Yes. And it's not happening. Yeah. <clears throat> And then, of course, you see them, they draw the gun out and their their presentation from the holster to the target may happen in an acceptable time limit. But then they get the gun out and they stop and they stand there trying to get perfect on those sights. And then their finger goes to the trigger and they start the whole thing and then it all collapses and falls apart. They've never learned how to put all of that together. Yep, you're right. And, you know, I was, I was going over some stats with with the class yesterday and I wonder for a certain year how many officers were killed uh, that never got shots off in their fight and one of the things I think is because they couldn't get their gun out of the holster effectively yep. to deal with this. you know some of them were just straight up ambushes they didn't have a chance uh, and I said but you know when you start reading through the Leoka and I referred them to that and that's FBI law enforcement officers killed in, in action uh, it's a synopsis on a yearly basis of every cop that was killed in the U.S. Um, 
you know, you'll see so many of them that were killed with their own firearm. And the natural reaction to that is, well, their gun got taken away from them. We need to get them um, even more drawproof holster. Well, what that doesn't look at is were their firearms taken away from them after they were already drawn. Because that's two different problems. And an 18-level retention holster ain't going to solve one of them. And then it's going to make everything else we got to do harder. All right, Lane? I'm sorry, you're looking for something for me, and I'm not sure what you're looking for. Mr. Jones, what's the biggest thing that you think they need to they we need to be harping on and teaching? Um, I I definitely agree with with drawing and, and with everything you're saying. I think in a bigger sense though as well, you know, we're a 16-week academy and there comes a point in time where a lot of the recruits feel very comfortable, they feel very good at being at the academy. They're they're great at everything that we might ask them to do. But because they don't have a lot of real world experience yet, they don't understand that there is a combative component to this. So while, yes, you might be good at firing the qualification course, the qualification course has very, very little to do with you actually fighting somebody else. Uh, that's just the, the bare minimum test of can you operate the gun in such a way that you can keep it going. So I think I, I'm not sure that I could nail it down to one specific skill, even though, yes, drawing, presenting and firing in a good amount of time is obviously important. But even one step back from that, how can I get my recruits to understand, okay, I need to have the, the visual recognition, this situation has gone to this point, and being willing to draw the gun, point it at somebody else, and pull the trigger. I think that's that's even the bigger part that I'm working through right now, and just that mental space. How can I get them to recognize the situation for what it is, and engage themselves appropriately? The skills piece of that I can, I can fill in, but they have to be willing to do it, recognizing that that's now become necessary. Lane, have you looked at uh, Joan Vickers' research at all on, you know, uh, the eye movement patterns of experienced officers versus uh, less experienced officers? I have heard other people talk about it. I haven't dug into it myself. Um, basically, she she tracked um, officers with lots of experience versus new officers. And basically, to, to summarize her research, the new officers didn't know what to look at in that combative environment, whereas the veteran officers were watching hands, were watching certain aspects of body languages to cue them into, this is my time. So something that I did with my recruits a lot is I would arm them with blue guns, red guns, whatever. And I would do the same thing for myself. And I would give them threat cues and draw guns from various concealed positions on my body, point the guns at them to get them hundreds of repetitions of seeing a gun being drawn against them and responding to that. I didn't want them being inexperienced and not knowing where to look. And after, after 50 times I pulled guns on them, they started getting really, really good at that combative aspect of reading that body where they aren't in the beginning. Unless you tell them, this is what it looks like when somebody's about to attack you. And that's the cue that you draw your gun fire they need to see that and they need to see that multiple times to realize what they need to look at and what they need to concentrate on in order to cue that motor program that you've worked on on the range i like that a lot thank you greg i gotta tell you that what it looks like from the rear when someone does an appendix draw 
looks exactly the same as when someone spills coffee in their lap as you're walking up on their patrol car. I mean, on their car on a traffic stop. It looks exactly the same. And I tell you what my reaction was. This dude just spilled coffee in his lap, hot scalded coffee, and I was pointing a gun at him at the same time. He just was not having a good day. <laughs> Sorry, sir. <laughs> you have a problem you need to deal with. <laughs> yeah, serve him right for passing me. <laughs> the speed limit and then not stopping when I turned on my blue lights and when I hit the siren he realized I was back there and he drove into the ditch and he had his hands up and yeah it looks exactly the same yes Mel yes Fluid. so Greg's talking about giving them context you know or what you know and I just wonder if um I'm sure you're doing some reality-based training at some point, Lane, yes or no? Yes. Okay, why not do it first? I mean, is there a sequence? <clears throat> I... that's, part, that's part of the rewrite that I'm working through. Um, so yes, we typically do a certain block of firearms training and then we start to integrate that in with defensive tactics, um, active shooter response, uh, the simulation, like things like that. So we try to have that base level of firearm skill and then put that into different contexts. Okay, but sooner. In other words, giving them, I guess, inspiring them to understand why certain things, the components of um, firing a handgun, components of drawing, components of protecting yourself, fighting through uh, you know, the combative piece, if you will, in a CQB environment. Um, it's, it, you might be able to get an emotional response from them by introducing it sooner. Uh, here's the why. Um, and I don't know because you get, we've got systems flaws in all police academies. You guys have already touched on a number of them. Um, time and money, human resources, right? Um, range resources, et cetera. And so it's, it's difficult, but what's nice about uh, reality-based stuff is you can do it anywhere mm -hmm. and um, you don't necessarily have to use one technology over the other um, you don't have to break the bank on that but um, I, I've done a little of that in in a couple of the classes uh, over the years that we've delivered and we just do a force on force right out of the box mm -hmm. and it's you know it's 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 an emotional revelation, if you will, of oh my god, um, this is this is why I need to move. This is why you know, and so the, the down part about that is when you're teaching, say, platform, and you're teaching a stationary platform, and you want their feet to be, say, for example, one here and one there, then it's kind of hard to um, correspond that with, yeah, that didn't look anything like you know what you were doing when you were being shot at. So there's a balance there in a sweet spot, um, you know, when you're teaching the fundamentals versus how it's really going to look in the street. Yeah, stance only matters when you get to pick your stance. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, uh, to go along with what you're saying, Greg, didn't William April argue that the first training should be force-on-force -force training, and then we started working about technical stuff? He did. He, th he thought that that would set the correct emotional component to the training and provide the motivation that the students would need to to learn the more boring stuff. So yeah, he argued for that in lots of the classes I taught together. 
you're, you're kind of doing that with them also, Greg, by giving them context. And that's really what we're, I think we're talking about. At least that's why I understand it is, um, you know, I, I've had a couple of clients where they just didn't see the need. They didn't understand the urgency or the value of the training or why it was their agency would spend so much time in bringing in someone to, to try to help. And that's because that person's never been shot at. That person's never had to point a, a live firearm at another person. That person's never been to a cop's funeral. So we just don't have the same understanding of uh, the value of the training. And so uh, they just lack context. Seth, certainly with all this time, you've had a chance to think of something smart to say. I've been madly taking notes so that, <laughs> you know, I can do what all good instructors do, which is steal ideas from other people properly, you know, used. Um, I would circle back a little bit towards draw speed and things like that. And that's where I like, you know, aggressive dry practice that's under the supervision of a fair number of instructors. You know, I mean, like how we break it up in blocks, uh, because one of the things, one of the challenges we have in our academy is we take everybody from a, a smorgasbord of agencies that may have 300 people working for them, or the person that they sent us is the chief of police and also the only officer. And we don't have any choice as to what equipment they bring or what sort of firearms they provide. And some of what we have to do up front is diagnose what they're doing with their equipment because sometimes people bring equipment that's not suited for them and that impacts their their first shot time immensely so you know we can diagnose that out the more reps that we can supervise them you know even one-on-one -on -one sometimes on and get a feel for what's going on and then you know start working on fixing it lane i saw you nodding feverishly in agreement when he talked about the equipment so you must have something good to add there. Oh, we have the exact same, uh, you know, situation. So we get a very broad range of folks who come in. Some people's agencies do a really excellent job of saying, hey, this is mm -hmm. at least a standardized level of equipment. And everybody gets this. Here you go. You can kind of work through that. And we we can help them with that. And some people, I think I had a guy in the, the previous class, he walked in with a, the world's, actually the world's, it's the oldest Glock box I've ever seen. And he said, I found <laughs> this gun in a drawer I think this is what I'm going to use for training. And, and here we go. And so we kind of had to start, like you said, from nothing. Or I've got a recruiter just came to me earlier today um, with a varied, non-standard kind of uniform setup and wanted to know how to be successful with that. So exactly what he said a second ago, that's some of the trick is to apply their uh, level of experience, but also their equipment uh, shortages or strengths, and then try to make that fit the metric we're trying to help them to meet. And that in and of itself can be difficult. Yeah. And of course, now we're seeing with the advent of pistol-mounted optics, that's a whole nother conundrum there or yes. that the instructors have to be up to speed on. And are they able to teach that along with the iron sights? And I know if an instructor hasn't been keeping current and mm -hmm. hasn't been getting that education, now they got students showing up on their line with, with optics on their guns, they may not know how to teach that. And so that can be an equipment problem that is not anyone's fault the agency actually issued them good equipment but are we up to speed in teaching that mm -hmm. uh, um i had a thought pop into my head and it's just 
one of the things I think students or new officers struggle with, and I, I guess it goes along for the old officers that just haven't put in the work to get better on this particular topic, is I think they're prone to drawing their gun at the wrong time because they don't have confidence in their skill of getting it out when they need it. And then we have guns out there that can be easily taken away. And we also have mm -hmm. people that are drawing guns and pointing them at people as a muzzle covering <laughs> me when they're not legally justified to do so. And I've been on this, this bandwagon for a year and a half or so. Of we shouldn't be pointing the firearm at something we are not legally justified to shoot. And I'm finally starting to get some, some buy-in to that in our area. And uh, just on those two topics, I'm just going to go around, Luann. Well, I agree with you. There's there's two things that, that I've noticed. It's not only drawing it uh, out of um, lack of confidence, right? Because they they're, it might take them, uh, they've been told probably by more than one instructor that, that that they're too slow out of the rig. And so they prematurely draw the firearm. And some of the, the uh, body-worn cameras that I've observed, it's not that the finger is, is on the trigger pressing, but it's sort of draped over like it's, like there's no, no control over the trigger whatsoever. Like there's a tendon that's torn or something. And it's just sort of, just sort of casually draped over the, the trigger just a little bit you know, just a little pregnant. Um, so, um, so those are the two things that I've noticed is, yeah, they're, they're scared. Uh, and, and there's a whole host of reasons why our officers are scared right now. Uh, and I think just not confident in their performance and they know it. And uh, now they're in a position where they have to to do something. So they're drawing prematurely and their finger is getting touching the trigger. Awesome. And they're talking to people while it's shooting. Yeah. See a lot of trigger checking. Yeah. yeah. People Baldy. who aren't confident in their use of firearm. Baldy did a study on that and he called it trigger confirmation. He watched people in his agency going through the shoot houses. And I forget what the numbers were, but he tracked how many would just touch the trigger just to make sure it was still there. <laughs> Uh, various times uh, going through the shootout that a lot. Yeah. Did my trigger fall off the gun since the last time I've had it out of the holster? <laughs> let, me, let me make sure we'll be still there. Yep. Yep. Uh, Greg, you've got much more of a background on the DT side of this. Uh, what do you think about that whole concept of they're getting the gun out because they're not confident in their ability to get the gun out when they need it. And then we've got the problem of it being taken away that that's happening a lot I, i'm seeing officers draw the gun way too quickly just because they're scared it's they haven't been in enough confrontations either in real life or in viable simulations in police training that they they get scared and they default to drawing that gun i actually drawing the taser and then when the taser doesn't work 50% of the time, they immediately transition to the firearm because they've got no other options. They can't close the distance and put hands on people. They don't think about pepper spray, baton, anything else. Uh, it's taser, gun, or run away. I think the only way we can fix that is really, really a lot more structured 
combative type use of force, force on force training sessions where they get to integrate those force options uh, under stress and build those motor skills. Um, with the muzzling issue, I have a pushback. Uh, in a class with Tom Givens last month, and I brought this point up. Um, I think one is muzzling innocent people that don't need to be muzzled. And on board, that has to stop. You know, uh, I looked at the recent Austin shooting. I put a couple articles up on my website, if you look, and, mu you know, muzzles were flying everywhere and pointing at it, houses and other officers, and that has to stop. That's, that's horrible, and uh, we need to fix that. Uh, but I'm a little bit less worried you are Lee about pointing at bad people who may yeah. be gun pointed at them. Yeah. And I, I'll tell you, uh, uh, just one, uh, I went to arrest a murderer once, um, and he was supposedly armed with a pistol. And I drew to low ready and confronted him and told him to get on the ground and went for what I thought was a pistol in his pocket. Um, it actually turned out to be a cell phone. Uh, he was going to call his lawyer, but he he made a drawing. And I moved from low ready to pointing the pistol at his face and telling him I was going to shoot him in the head if he didn't mm -hmm. stop. And that instantly changed the dynamics of the scenario. You know, I'm, I'm a pretty big guy and I'm not afraid of confrontation and I've got a big voice. And, you know, most of people I could intimidate into compliance uh at a good, solid, low ready position. But there were times that that didn't work. And I had to point my, and I <coughs> legally justified in pulling the trigger. But in 15 years ago, we tended to consider pointing guns at people a threat of force mm -hmm. and with a viable threat of force under some conditions. Now it is automatically considered a use of force with the body cams and with most police departments' use of force considerations. And I don't know how we got between those two different considerations. And I think there are, in general, you're absolutely right. We shouldn't be pointing don't uh, who aren't a obvious threat to us. But I'm a little bit more open idea of some people need guns pointed at them uh and if we don't do that and show people we're willing to shoot them we might get into more problems than we're solving by keeping the gunner right pointed at the dirt between their feet right but you put it in the context and you articulated it and you yeah. made it make sense i think it's different when you're going in to take down a murder suspect and he reaches for something in his pocket that's different than i'm just giving verbal commands I agree. Just so Yep. And what, what I've what I'm talking about is people that draw the gun out, they got them pointed out where they're giving them the commands to do something. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with your I read your article, I actually shared it uh into the show group on the incident in Austin. Uh, I watched a video one night this week where officers walking up on a house, another officer comes up behind them and says, Hey, give me a taser. And so they swap taser and pistol and everything as they're going. And the guy that draws out his pistol to be the lethal coverage using his weapon mounted light as his searchlight and points it is pointing his searchlight, excuse me, his weapon mounted light at a child who opens the door to the house. Okay. If you're 
weapon-mounted light is pointed at the person, then your muzzle is pointed at the person. That's where I'm, I'm really getting into this whole thing of we got to get out of this mindset of just pointing guns at people who are not legally justified to do so. And we need to be driving home that your searching is done with a handheld light. The weapon light is for positive target identification. Yep, I agree. Lane? No, I agree. That makes sense to me. You got more than that. Come on. No, I think that's, and and I'm, you know, obviously younger in the group and have come up in an age of law enforcement. Um, I started in 2013. And so a lot of the recent stuff that's happening, you know, I was working the road around that time. And a lot of my formative experiences have been kind of post a lot of this, this use of force change that, that Greg is talking about. Um, I, I did not have that same necessary experience for me. If the gun was out, unless I was willing to pull the trigger on that person and just hadn't decided to do it, uh, I was going to keep it at ready. And between the ready position and the verbal commands, that was always sufficient for me. Um, but I think you're exactly right. You're at the point where he's reaching for something. From what you're describing, you're legally justified to do what you have to do anyway. So then there, there's really no conflict. That's just what it took for him to comply um, was was seeing the gun pointed at him um, where that, that might not have worked in my case. Seth? Um, you know, from the very beginning in our academy, we definitely emphasize when it's okay to point a gun at someone and when it isn't. And like you said before, the bottom line is be able to articulate it. You know, I've heard my boss tell people time and time again, hey, that thing you just did, there's a name for that. It's called aggravated assault. So, and we back it up, not just with words, we do an awful lot of, you know, dry handling skills where they may have to suddenly come to a low ready, aim the gun somewhere else, both with our blue guns and when we're doing other things. And just, we like to try to program that in on them. You know, that's been a, a big thing we've been doing for quite a while. Uh, one of the drills that I try to work on uh is a drill or a skill you can combine it that i try to work on with with my students is hand on the pistol while it's still in the holster retention device is defeated because now we're all carrying some sort of als locking system that if you take your hand off the gun it locks back in you know i carried a safari lens 070 triple retention you had to actually snap the gun in so mm -hmm. this this technique didn't work quite back here in that era Hand on the gun retention device is defeated on average out of testing this in over a hundred classes takes three quarters of a second off of your presentation. And that's, I call it a ready position. I call it the holster ready. Yep. And we run, we don't have the problems with the muzzle. We are decreasing the amount of time that it actually takes to get it into play. The gun is still defensible if we get into a non-deadly force situation all of a sudden, because I personally have drawn a gun when I was legally justified and then ended up in a fist fight and wasn't legally justified to shoot. And I had this problem because I had this gun in my hand. Yeah. So I think that position kind of solves everything. Excuse me for a second. Uh, I, I was, I was once in a foot, with a bank robber and um it was me and two detectives chasing this bank robber who had a gun and i i was muzzled about you know 30 by the, <laughs> but 
detectives who all three of us had our guns out because you know we're chasing an armed bank robber what do you you gotta have a gun in your hand right and and i'm running and i remember running next to this detective and take his finger off the trigger as we're chasing this (laughs) just what you said you know maybe you know in a foot might be a little bit better for us to keep the holster it's okay to have the hand on the gun ready to draw it but that seemed to solve a whole lot of problems and i went to teach that at the agency and uh we had some pretty good success with doing just that Mm -hmm. and you know a lot of officers because they get a few reps firing Mm -hmm. from you know in in the state qualification courses most of the qualification courses fire more from the holster than they do from the ready they're actually a little faster coming from the holster than they are even from a low ready so it builds that same motor program and i'm very much in favor of the holstered ready yeah that's one of the reasons why if i were starting all over again i would go full-on inboard manipulations as our buddy spalding teaches uh, because it puts my hands back in the same spot that my position three is on the draw and it maximizes that thing. When I'm in my conscious mind, I'm able to do it. When I'm just executing a motor program, I tend to go back to the overhand that uh, that I've done for, for so many years. Luann, you had something you wanted to add? Well, I just I find it humorous that Greg, you know, would, I mean, everybody knows you can run faster when you've got a pistol in your hand. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did that for a number of years in uh, my early career because I was uh, – sent out to a concept team and worked in Detroit and you know we were always we had our guns out and if you didn't then the person to the left or to the right of you would tell you to get your you get your gun out and so <clears throat> but again that was a different time and a, and a different place um but the uh you know I I, I kind of agree you know you, you you find yourself getting to a fence or you find yourself having to maybe de-escalate and you know, so there's, I, I think a lot of that we can, we can teach the recruits in scenario and reality-based training. And when they do find themselves muzzling another person, whether they've got a weapon mounted light or whatever technique, yeah, we like lasers again, uh, to teach uh, operating with a firearm because they, they have to understand there's, there's two different things that are, and you have to differentiate, I guess. They're shooting the gun and then there's operating with the gun and they're, they, you know, they're not exclusive of one another. So I've, I've come in contact with some great shooters, but they cannot operate with a firearm, period. And so all things, people, places and things, you know, when you're talking about your environment and people and things that are in it, that the operation of that firearm, I think we failed a lot of our younger officers because we're not holding them accountable at the very basic level or in service. And it, and it has to be addressed and it has to be remediated immediately. Yeah. I think a lot of things that we do on a traditional firing line setting are counterproductive to the overall goal of what we want to have happen. I agree. You're balancing safety with reality, yep. constantly balancing safety with reality. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to make you stand in this spot and if you move from it, yeah, you're, you're going to get screamed at. You're going to get thrown out of the academy. You're going to have all this stuff happen. Well, then it's why do they stand stationary in that one spot when someone was shooting at them? Because every time they've gone to do this thing with the tool, Lord help them if they took a step to the left or right, you know, the 
heavens opened and then the lightning bolts came down and i think that's where we got to be doing all the stuff we've already talked about with the blue guns with the simulators with 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 the reality-based training so that they are able to process all of that when it comes time to use the tool right we would we would sometimes just sort of um when we get to a certain level, we wouldn't we wouldn't jack with the kids uh, immediately. But when they got to a certain level, uh, occasionally we would do something to interrupt their draw. For example, you know, hand on the back of the elbow, and they'd have to kind of deal with those types of things. You know, we're going to be going into scenarios here next week, and you need to understand that it's it's you're not going to ha- you're not going to be shooting in a bubble. You're not going to be operating in. There's going to be other people and things around you that you're just going to have to work through that draw stroke and. You know, maybe you don't have the opportunity to to shoot because your front stop just changed and, you know, those types of things. But I just don't think, I think we're failing at the fundamental level with our police recruits. Anyone else have any comments along, along that line they would like to address before I move on to the next topic? Okay. So here's the the $64 question for tonight. At what point are a student's skills, I'm talking technical skills with the firearm here, their technical skills with the firearm enough that we're willing to turn them loose with a drill sheet to go work on their own practice, et cetera. And when I'm talking about skill set, you know, we can, if you want to, you can equate it to, some known thing like IDPA sharpshooter, IDPA expert, or USPSA, DC, whatever. Um, and I'll throw myself under the bus on this one first. I really think upper level IDPA sharpshooters about the time someone's actually able to sufficiently get on their own. And so Lane was like, well, what, what is that? Put it to me in terms from like the training world that we could say. And we're looking at maybe you know, if you look at the chart from John Hearn, kind of that second category on that chart is about where I think that they're able to start working on it on their own and starting to move forward. Yeah. Lee, do you have officers that you put on the street that aren't in that category? Because I would say that be, if I'm unwilling to let them practice on their own due to concerns about their lack of skill they should not be operating at i would has i would say that most of the cops out in the united states carrying guns are not at that level right now so you would say that having them not practice vision is better than having them you know doing some sort of practice on their own well, that that's the question here for discussion. Uh, I would, I would like to see more supervised. Obviously, I want more training, uh, more supervised. I would like to see us get to that level quickly. I think that ought to be the base standard, not necessarily the. This is where we're going to go and turn them loose. Um, I just know that in the the realities of the logistics and time, we're just not there. Um, in an ideal perfect world, you know, I would love to even after they graduate from the academy have a firearms instructor every day with them in the shift briefing room working dry draws with yeah. a blue gun. And just, you know, if you could put a stamp, and that's your point's an excellent point of con- discussion, and please expand on that. Well, 
you know, I, I look back at my training and I, I started shooting when I was very young and I won my Academy shooting award and <laughs> I was better than the average top, but when I graduated the Academy, but I had no formal training crap. And, um, I really didn't know what I was doing. I would not have put my, in right. Uh, that level two on, on, uh, when I Academy, but I was still better than a lot of the other folks that I did. And we didn't get much training. Mm-hmm. I fire 50 or 100 rounds more than the qualification and that's all we got and the only reason I made the little skill level that I had is that I made it a point once a month on my own uh, not knowing what I was I my academy training was trash but I maintained the skill level I had through frequent practice. And I would hate to see an officer not allowed to do that because I know that most agencies, their formal training is inadequate. I'd rather have them doing some training on their own, even if it isn't perfect, than nothing at that point in time. Let me see if I can do a better job of articulating what I'm talking about here. Uh, I was kind of in that same position as you are. You were you were just describing. Um, I've already told how I made the 10-point jump in my qualification scores. Pretty quickly after that point, I got well, like I won my agency's award for the highest qual score not long after that. Uh, several things. I thought I was good. My agency gave me an award for my ability to shoot. And there were lots of things that I was practicing and burning in hard and doing lots of reps on it. And then when I stumbled onto this little gun game called IDPA and I was shocked when I showed up the first time and didn't mop up the floor and and whip everybody. And I realized, wait a minute, we're shooting against a running clock versus shooting against a overly generous part-time. And at that point, when I began to study the actual techniques and learn the proper pathway to get the pistol from the holster to the target, that kind of stuff. I had to spend way more time unlearning what I had actually learned and building the reps and getting it to do the, the correct way. And I still now to this day, because I came up in the whole tactical turtle era. If I get pressed or I start getting a little tired, I will revert to that because that's the strongest motor program. If you read Dustin Solomon's books, whatever you put in there first is going to be the strongest. And uh, Justin Dial, I did went to his technical force on force class, and I went tactical turtle so hard in that class a couple of times, I had to take some ibuprofen or Tylenol after the class. My elbows were hurting so hard. And I can't tell you how much effort I s- expended on making myself actually shoot with my head up and my shoulders back and elbows bent, bringing the gun up higher to my eyes versus getting my head down to where the gun was. And that's what I'm talking about is I want that supervision of that that practice and that training is to drive home and burn all those reps to be useful reps, not wasting the time and making it harder. Was that a better articulation of what I'm trying to talk about here? Yes, I guess what, what it comes down to in my mind is 
are the officers going to get solid professional training at some point as a follow-up from the academy? If so, I think you're probably right. Don't don't let them burn in those bad reps because we're going to fix them over, you know, over a few training sessions once we get them out of the academy. But how many of those officers will never solid actual training? Those folks, I'd rather have them practice in something, even if it's wrong, rather than okay. holding off in that environment. Uh, I, I agree with that. I will concur with that. Uh, I'll even throw a funny one out there that I started including as part of my shotgun qual for the agency each year was they had to successfully load and unload the shotgun with dummy rounds because I had guys that could pass the shooting qualification that didn't know how to properly load and unload the shotgun. Yep. So once, once they jacked around into that chamber, the only way they knew how to get it out was to sit there and rack oh. all the rounds out of the gun. Yep. And but they were qualified because they shot the school on the course. So completely concurring and agreeing with the point that you just made because hey, I wouldn't have gotten to the point that I got within the agency if I had not been working on my own. So thank you for reminding me of that. But let's let's say all right, in a perfect world they're going to go to a qualified trainer as they leave the academy setting or whatever what point do you think people should be able to be turned loose on their own? I get, I think if I had, you know, and I haven't thought about this, so this is just mm -hmm. kind of right off the, the tip of my tongue. I want them to be able to, without effort, pass their state qualification course before they can qualify on there or before they're turned loose to practice unsupervised. That's probably not the level of competence that you're talking about with regard to Hearn's research, but mm -hmm. probably where if they can't have qualified training badly, and I don't want them burning in those bad reps. So I would probably draw the line a little bit lower than you have. All right, so what do you mean by easily pass the qualification course, though? Well, you know, when I started training in the training job, you know, fully, you know, a third of my officers did not pass at the 80% level that my um, state required on the first try. They would need multiple tries to pass through. So, you know, I'd like to see something higher than base level, you know, 80%. But, you know, some if someone can consistently pass at the 90% level on their state qualification, I'd feel pretty good about letting them practice, you know, practice on their own. Okay. Uh, I don't know the agency to which I just left, uh, the sheriff put in a mandate that they shot below an 85 on the state qual course they were required to go for additional remedial, you know, called it, hey, we don't want to use the word remedial, but they were going to have to go through additional uh, training. And, you know, I'd have guys that would come down and they'd shoot like an 82 or something on the course. And then I have someone else, all right, we got enough time in ammo, we're going to run the call course again. And then they'd come up and they would shoot like an 86 on it. And then the question would be, well, do I have to go back through remedial since I got an 86 the second time? It's like, wait a minute, we're paying you. We're 
furnishing you a car, we're giving you gas, we're giving you the ammo. Why wouldn't you want to come down? Well, you know, <laughs> I, yeah. I started out with a monthly open range day when I got the training job where I would give them all the ammo that they they could if they wanted me to run them through the drills like that and i had to stop doing it because no one showed up yep. if you're i'm not doing it yeah i i had uh, deputies that would just ask for ammo i said i'll give you all the ammo you want provided one of the instructors is with you on the range to expend it yeah or i get you using grass back because you know that half of those guys are stockpiling it in their bedroom selling that stuff on so yeah, if I grass back, I'll give you the ammo. Yeah, there you go. And you know, we we were supporting people going to training outside the agency and doing stuff. And then a lot of some of the guys took advantage of it. Some of them didn't. Uh, I will say that the people that have chosen to gunfight with our deputies chose poorly, because you know two of them that took place were two of the guys that are in the top five on the casino drill, and you know those are not the guys I want to pick gunfights with. Luann, do you have any thoughts? I was just uh, listening to your conversation um, about um, allowing them to go to the range by themselves or to practice by themselves. And a couple notes that I made here is that the state qualification, whatever that is, I agree with that. They have to show performance at a certain level. Um, and then whatever other objectives you have, if they're, if they're measurable performance objectives, um, then yeah, I would I would say practice on your own, whether it's dry fire or or whatever the uh, the assignment is. If it's self guided uh, homework, you're going to give them a box of fifty and they're going to go shoot. I need to see proof. I need to see what you did with those agencies fifty rounds. Yeah. And I'd I'd like to know the drills you did, or we talk about the drills that you're going to perform. And then you, you know, you report back, you know, send me a, a FaceTime video or take a couple pictures and just, you know, that way I'm involved in your, in your, in your process, you know, your performance process. Yeah. You know, Greg talked about the open range days I, well, for what people that would show up before we also ended the open range days. I see people come down and they would do nothing but waste a box of ammo or two boxes of ammo and get no value out of whatsoever. All they did was turn taxpayer money into noise mm -hmm. without coaching structure or something. Now to what Lane was proposing, like a list of drills that they take and work on. I think if you could do some sort of, maybe something with that where all right, go shoot these and report back on your prime. I, I could be on board with that. Yeah. So, right. Lane, you gave us this whole idea. So what do you, what are your thoughts? <laughs> I think my question at this point, so I guess contextually too, when I had texted you and said, hey, you know, I'm looking mm -hmm. at some of these sustainment drills, the recruits have been through 70 hours of a 72-hour program. So I have two more hours. We used to spend it watching officer-involved shooting videos. Uh, we've now taken that part out. So I have now two additional hours. I'm just taking the recruits to the range for a two-hour session. This is kind of their last hurrah. Uh, and I'd had several recruits ask me, hey, when I go out and practice, once I'm done with the academy, what do I do? So they're they're at the end of whatever training we are going to provide. Um, so I wanted to find a list of quality skills and drills that I can give them to say, hey, if you're going to take the time to go practice on your own, 
I'm going to give you something that has the ability to be beneficial, not just exactly what you said, turn in tax pay dollars into noise. That's kind of what I'm looking for. The fear is if I give them nothing, they either won't practice or they'll just run the qual. And like, well, I, I got an 80. I passed again and I'm done. My kind of question right now, though, so I've just started, you know, a new crop of recruits. You won't start shooting until late February. My question would be, rather than put a specific skill level on it, so before you can pass the qual, before you can do this, I don't want you to go out. If I say, hey, I'm full cool with you going out to practice, but I only want you to practice something that we have already done. So a skill that I have already taught you. I've taught you how to draw. I don't necessarily, especially at first, care how fast you draw. I just want every practice rep to be perfect. And then, yes, you can videotape yourself. You can compare the video of you to the demo video that we have. You can do all those things. And, and exactly what Greg said a little bit ago, or I'm sorry, as Luann said a little bit ago, you can kind of analyze yourself. You can do those remedial things to yourself. And I'm still getting those practice reps. You know, I, I guess what I struggle with is saying, well, they, they never practice without an instructor. It lessens their chances of mistakes or, or of bad repetitions. And I, I understand the logic of that. But realistically, that's just not possible to get the benefits that I need or the level of growth that I could get unless they're practicing on their own. Be it dry fire, live fire on the weekends if they want to go do that, all that stuff. So my question for the group would be, you know, does that sound like a valid solution? Or if I say, hey, I've got a recruit and we've been through these training blocks, they have demonstrated these levels of proficiency just on these individual skills. Hey, if you want to go practice, practice these things because I've seen you can do these well enough and I'm not worried about them going completely off the deep end in some other area. Seth, if you have any general comments as what we were talking about and to answer Lane's question, we'll start with you then we'll go back around because you just threw a wrinkle in that I would kind of like to address. <laughs> Seth? Um, yeah, and I would echo the thing about open range days. My experience with that at my agency was that I had shooters show up, but they were people who were already serious about shooting. So they did get some benefit, but the people I really needed to reach, you know, they always had an excuse. So as far as like during our academy process, we discourage self-initiated practice and loan practice. But post-academy, um, I'd love to see a lot more of that. I know we advocate people reaching out to their local competitive shooting clubs to engage in some of that. And some of our students do, but the problem there, of course, is the police ego. No one wants to get beaten by a plumber in one of those competitions. And there's some plumbers that can shoot. So I'd be interested to see some sort of a, a, a directed self-sustainment program of some kind. All right. The wrinkle that you opened up there, now you have two hours that you can basically teach them what to go practice. That's two hours that I don't see in our curriculum there. And that, that's a different, that was outside of my frame of reference and my thought and that I missed in our text conversation. Ash, which is that, that opens up a different can of worms. All right. As you're leaving here, we're going to spend the next two hours of what I want you to practice and do that. That's, that's, we're on the same page now. Okay. Gotcha. I don't know. I mean, I don't even know if you're capable of doing this, but, um, you know, when you, when you start figuring out what the strengths and weaknesses of 
each shooter and you're documenting that this person struggles at the 15 or reloading or what have you. And you somehow create ownership that they understand that they're slow or that they, you know, what, whatever the issue is. Um, those get diagnosed in an early time. Um, it's almost like that's, that might be the thing that they might want to spend time on in those last two hours. And rather than you telling them what they're going to spend time on, they're going to come to you and say, you know, I've been struggling with this thing throughout the entire academy, buddy them up or put them in teams of three and have them work together on each of their uh, deficiencies. It's and that is something that I have some ability to to build in. And it's interesting you bring that up. I wish I had met you a long time ago. Um, I had so a nickel for every guy that said that. Know, right, right. <laughs> um, it's, that's something I'm developing for the program right now is, is individual sheets where I can essentially, and this is kind of going back to a little bit of budget. Uh, I think the term he used was chart each individual shooter. Hey, where are they at on these things? And then be able to call back to that. Uh, so that's something that I'm building in and yes, that's something I could use going forward. This uh, this was kind of a two-hour block that um, it was pretty recently after the responsibilities of the training had, had come to me. And so the kind of what we were going to do was a little bit more of a, hey, this is yours now. You've got two hours. You know, go ahead and make do with it. And so I, I was doing what I had with, with the time that I had. Sure. You're kind of relinquishing control and letting them know that it's it's kind of up to you now. And when I was FTOing, we would have, you know, the three areas that there was a deficiency and here's what we're going to work on tonight and something else you want to do, whatever you want to do. And we would do blocks of instruction at the academy or at the, uh, the range when we would have open range. And hey, just so you know, we're going to do about, I don't know, 45 minutes on reloading and then whatever you want to do and whatever you want to do. And so it seemed like this, the psychology there, um, worked to everybody's favor and but you know some people they don't know what what's going on they don't know that they're a really slow shooter or they don't know mm -hmm. that they just really have a abusive dysfunctional relationship with their trigger you know they don't know these things and so once they become aware of it um they you know they have to take ownership of it and uh you know it's the people that take ownership they really have the most potential for improving uh the people that don't know or don't care really for lack of a better um that's the biggest struggle you can't can't get in here or in here so it's that's and we all work with those people so yeah that's actually a quick side note that's something i took from the class that i took from you last year was just going to the class even a class of almost 50 shooters and saying all right i have this and this and this we're going to do these things today but after that, what do you guys want to do? And I would put it back to them. And they were always very, very excited to, as a class, decide what they wanted to work on. I would mm -hmm. tell them, hey, you tell me what you want to get better at. You won't always get to decide what we do, but but it will always be done with the goal of getting you better at that. And so I kind of kept some, some control of that. Um, but that made a huge difference in giving them some ownership of that to say, what do you want to work on or what do you want to get better at? That's what we'll work on today. Sometimes I'd say, hey, what do you want to do? If there's a certain thing we've done in the past, hey, yeah, we can go do that again. That's fine. Um, but other times I just put it out as, what do you want to get better at? All right, I can pick that and we'll go forward. And that was really, really neat to see their engagement. So I got that from you.
yeah, they don't have a lot of control over, you know, what they're supposed to be, what time their break is, you know, what they're supposed to be wearing, what, you know, they don't have any of that control. So they just give them just a little, just a little pinch of control. I think it makes a, a big difference. That is actually one of the things that has been covered in the graduate program that I've been working on is that adults want to basically, they want a facilitator and a guide more so than they want a teacher or a no. coach. And I struggle with that uh, from my perspective as a teacher or a coach is because I'm so, this is what you need to know. This is whatever. And it's giving them a chance to have some sort of say in some of the lesson plan or some of what they're doing. I think that's easier done on an agency level than it is at an academy level. Uh, because we're having to meet a state mandated curriculum or something like that. But that is, if I, if I were going back 15 years and starting over my agency training program again, that was something I would wish I had known at that point. Uh, once I got the culture war headed in the right direction, that probably would have been an approach that I wish I had known to take. Right, Greg? Uh, thinking back, building on what Luann had to say and how to, how to simplify this in the academy scenario, I think, you know, just off the top of my head, you know, every state qualification has various stages in it. Run everybody through their qualification and track which stages they have the most problems with and give them 50 rounds to work that individual stage. I don't think that's going to be harmful in any context, getting them practicing what they're poor at. Beyond that, I'm thinking, you know, some fun kind of drills that might keep their engagement up. I'm thinking something like Justin Dial's par five or maybe the super test on a B8. Um, and then the other thing I'm thinking of is something that you could give them is dot torture. They're not, it's not going to ever be bad to have them working good trigger control and accuracy and dot torture and keep them reasonably entertained for 50 rounds to do something like that. So combine in what they're bad at their state qual with something, you know, like a super test or a par five and then dot torture. I think that gives them quite a few choices that they can uh, keep entertained with. And they remember those simple drills take them home and practice them in the future seth um just soaking it all in here the and i i agree you know in bigger agencies it'd be nice if their fto or their pto would have you know a hookup with their firearms instructor staff and they could you know do a little bit of that follow-on training uh in a lot of cases in which we operate, I mean, it would have to be some kind of a traveling thing because again, we have some agencies that are literally one person. It'd be nice to design like a mentoring program or something, you know, where people could get contact after the program and, you know, continue some of that education. So food for thought for me. Well, Lane, you've got a panel here uh, to pick brains. So if you got any other questions that you want to, Want to get feedback on now's the time and you can oh, talk whatever you want to the show is now yours lane take over oh look out look out uh no i i appreciate the chance to be here with a very very experienced panel of if nothing else i want to 
take tips from Greg on how to get my upper torso to look so <laughs> strong on the Zoom, you know, camera. Because I, I think the problem is I just don't have the right perspective on it. So if nothing else, I'll take that. Uh, no, I, I guess I'm looking to all of you, and, and I certainly recognize the experience in, in the room of police training, which is kind of the more specific context that I'm doing. And I do have a fantastic opportunity right now to to write a curriculum and build on the foundation that we have. Um, what would you guys pass on to me and say, hey, this is the big thing that can help make you successful. This is what I believe makes a huge difference in teaching police recruits, not only firearms, but just use and force and then get in there ready to go to FTO or go to solo patrol. Call on who you want to call on. Uh, I'll go just in order from the way my screen is set up. So, Seth, if you would start us out, please. Kill the PowerPoint. Mm. Um, you know, if we're talking about differences between the academies that we attended versus the academies we work in, mm. uh, I went through a full-time academy right about 20 years ago in this same area. And even the firearms portion, a lot of it was death by PowerPoint. Mm. We fast forward now to this time period and we have abandoned that we do priming and all sorts of things right on the range complex mm -hmm. and anything like handling and all those other things are demoed live and then they do it and we help critique it and help correct it and repeat it and the powerpoint is out the window we don't even do that part of it anymore mm -hmm. um and i think that's a huge benefit because we all know i mean you know telling somebody isn't teaching them Right. Uh, Luann. Okay, I like I like the Stolovich and Keeps uh, reference there. Uh, it's a great book. Um, Standing on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. Well, uh, I I absolutely agree uh, with uh, with Seth. I think the sooner you get them handling equipment and moving and and um, evaluating stuff. Um, I think that's so much better than the listening to the firearms instructor talk for eight hours and then listen to the firearms instructor talk for another six and then we get to touch the gun. So I like that taking the classroom onto the range and, and doing a lot of the, if you were going to call it lecture, um, a lot of the talking piece as you're, as people are, are moving with, with equipment in their hands. So I, I think that's much much better instructional strategy. And I don't know if you're married to that, whatever instructional strategy you're married to. Um, you know, if if you have got so many slides that you have to cover based on a state mandate, I mean, that's one of the the struggles that well, Greg and I don't have that anymore because we have academic freedom and we can we can do what we want. But so many state academies are just handcuffed by you know, this lesson planning that's required by um, post or whomever. And so, um, I mean, if they're giving you academic freedom, take as much as you can and then some. And, um, you know, the PowerPoint stuff that can be sent in an email. This is this is self-paced learning kids. You got three weeks to go through. That's all adult learning stuff, too. Right. Mm -hmm. so it's just to me, that's just a, a waste of time. You know, this is what you're going to be required to know when you step foot uh, in front of your firearms instructors. And so, again, it's it's giving them control, but it's also giving them responsibility at the same time. There will be a test. Mm 
And if I could just briefly just put a, a pin right in there before I go to Lee and Greg, I'm I'm looking at kind of the progression that I've written to this point, and I'm looking at it over here on this other monitor. And, and I, what you're saying is certainly ringing true with me. And I'm looking at this, you know, so I have brief comments that I'm going to talk about in the opening first hour, and then hour two, they're going to have their blue guns in their hand, and we're going to work on grip. And then the next session, I have a little bit more that I'm going to talk about, but then we're going to start doing ready positions. So I think exactly what you're saying, I believe that's the right direction for us to go, is getting the gun in the hand as quickly as I can. And I can intermingle a lot of information, but I have right on here, I can email a site picture before they come to the lecture. I don't need to spend a bunch of time on that, that I could be using to put a gun in their hand. They can get that before and that works out well. So I, I'm definitely going that direction Kind of what both of you are saying. I think that's kind of neat. I think from the learner, I would want that. Mm -hmm. I would want all of that stuff up front uh, because, again, I want control too. You know, I want to, as, as an adult, I want to take control of my own learning and um, and I'll spend the time um, with that information because I might be a little nervous or maybe I'm not, you know, you know, physical specimen like Greg there and I might want to spend a little bit more time you know, preparing myself and uh, you'll have that certain percentage of recruit that will, that will do that, you know, and uh, maybe they're not the fastest car in the race, but they're a good worker, you know, so they'll, they'll spend the time. Actually, I had a recruit in a previous class and I, I had to give her very, very high props, exactly what you said. She struggled initially with firearms and I spent a good amount of time with her not at a remediation phase, but doing remediation level things with her to try to help her as we were going so we wouldn't have a problem later on. Perfect. We got to the point of actually shooting the qualifications. She passed her qual, and I, I changed kind of how I was giving those out before we kind of made it a bigger deal, like, oh, this is your qual, this is a really big deal, and they would use that as kind of test anxiety to angle people up. I took it the, the other way, and it said, well, you guys are doing pretty good. Just go ahead and load duty ammo. And we'll shoot a we'll shoot a qual course, and you know what? If you get it, we'll we'll add it to the list that you have to have. And I never told them how many they had to have. It, we just we just did it once a day, and then we do something different. So she passed her required number of quals, and and afterwards she came up to me and asked, "Hey, did you know I passed? I, I got this number. What do I need?" I said, "Oh, you've actually got the required number. You have to have three. You passed three. You you did it, and you have to shoot it four times. You got to pass it three. Don't even get me started on that. Uh, but she got the required number and she looked at me and she said, well, okay, I didn't get the score I wanted. So I, I'm going to keep working to get a higher score on my fourth one. I think that's, that is exactly what I wanted. She's not the fastest car in the race, but she's willing to work. And she didn't say, oh, I got my three, I'm out. Well, I could probably do better. I'm going to try to do better next time because I already I already met the challenge. I know that was a really neat attitude from her and it exemplifies what you're saying. Awesome. Yeah, that was good. Good for you. Uh, Lee, same same question. Yesterday, as I was talking over some of the historical evolution of our response to active killers and the use of light techniques and stuff, it was two separate lectures that were kind of combined under one topic. And I mentioned that when I bought my Stinger flashlight that had 60 lumens, how excited I was and how I thought it was the greatest thing ever. And then I pulled my stiletto out of my pocket, not out of my pocket said, but now I have a thousand lumen light, everything that does so much more. And I went on and no one said anything. Well, today, one of the other instructors used the term lumens and I'm talking about a flashlight. 
and I was not teaching at the moment. I was standing to, but I could see the, all the faces of the cadets, and I saw this quizzical look, but no one raised their hand because they didn't want to be the one to ask, well, what's a lumen? So I walked up on the board, and I wrote the word lumen out. I said, guys, this is one of two ways in which the brightness of a flashlight is measured. So we've gone from 25 years ago, we had 60 of them, to now we've got them with a thousand of them. That's a pretty big deal. And I saw, oh, okay, now I understand what's going on. We got to make sure, as Tiffany and Ock would say, understand that they ain't us and that things that we know and that we just presume that other people know, they don't. And that if we don't teach them those things, they're not going to know, or if we don't provide that information to them, they're not going to know it. So we have to go back and put ourselves into their shoes, not ours. And that's a struggle for, for me because I've got all of this training and experience and I'm thinking, well, I know this, so certainly they should know this. <laughs> and I have to, wait a minute, they don't know who these, you know, what these concepts are. And so we have to go back to those basic building blocks and we can't presume that they know or, or that they're understanding because they not, may not want to come across as ignorant by asking the question is what they mean. And so I, I know it says sometimes we think we go simple and we'll think we might be belittling them. We just, if we get the presentation of it right, I think that's important. Greg, if you'd finish us out. Sure. Um, Luann talked about taking the classroom to the range. If I had it to do all over and I had complete control over an academy, I would do, in, in addition to what Luann suggested, I would kind of also do the reverse. I would take the range to the classroom. Every day, my students would be wearing duty belts with blue guns and maybe even dummy magazines, something like mm -hmm. that. Maybe the other use of force options, dummy taser, dummy OC, whatever. You're inevitably doing some sort of uh, state-mandated lectures on all different topics, sit down, butts in seat in the classroom. Students, <laughs> students hate it. They're bored. They're, they're just going through the mandatory training. How about you know, in every hour of that lecture, have them stand up and work 10 draw strokes with their with their blue gun. How about have them work, okay, you know, uh, all of a sudden there is a threat. How do you move amongst your seated classmates to get a shot on that person? You know, uh, it, it only has to be 30 seconds or a minute worth of work a couple times every hour. That keeps the students from getting bored and it provides thousands of repetitions over a 16 week academy. If I could do it over, that's what I would do in every single academy class. Mm -hmm. There you go. As I, I can see he's feverishly writing. Uh, All right, we're just going to go around the horn one final time. Uh, any closing thoughts that you have and anything you have upcoming? Uh, events-wise that you need to sell tickets to or, you know, international travel books or, or the like. Uh, <laughs> well, SHOT Show, you know, it's in my hometown. It's kind of hard to avoid, although sometimes I I, I do just a little bit. But um, I get real busy in March with uh, ILEDA and, of course, uh, TACCON. 
first uh, week of, of April again. I've been gifted with that invitation and would not turn that down. Um, super excited about that. Um, Girl and Don will be uh, presenting at their conference again this year, and then we'll be in full swing. So, And tell everybody how to find your company. It's pretty easy. It's uh, L-O-U-K-A Tactical, LucaTactical.com. All right. And I'll have course schedule and everything up on that. Well, if he doesn't, I'm going to be firing him this week. If, uh, <laughs> hopefully he's got the web, webmaster's got it. It should have something on there. Okay. Greg? Um, you can find me at activeresponsetraining.net. Uh, I think I'm going to have around 40 classes all over the 13 different states in 2024. Almost all of them are up there and all of the registration links will be activated within the next week or so. Um, so hit my website. There's a, there's a tab at the top that says 2024. Probably somewhere close to use uh, sometime next year. Wayne? Uh, I don't have a private company, but if you want to come be a cop in Iowa, I'm happy to help you with that. There you go. Seth? Uh, I don't have any products or services I'm offering. I'm just sort of a semi-retired guy who's trying to decide what he wants to do when he grows up. Um, Lee upsold me on TACCON this year by a text. He used some high-pressure sales there, so I'd like to attend as a student and just sort of soak things in and do some learning. There you go. I, I don't have any classes to offer at the moment. I've got two more classes in this graduate program that I'm I'm in, and you know, David Kegel. Uh, it's uh, I should be finished sometime in May, and after that, I'll start rolling back out some classes and stuff. And hopefully, there'll still be people to remember and want to do. The last time I took this long of a layoff uh, in classes, I had to start all over. Um, but hopefully I'm in a little better position this time that that doesn't happen. Um, with that, thank you everyone for coming on and participating tonight. Um, one of my big gripes was some of us in this industry is that we surround ourselves with people who won't challenge us and make us think about the positions that we're taking. And there were a couple of things tonight, like Greg challenged me on one statement and maybe just immediately start rethinking, you know, my position on Luke, uh, Lou brought up some, some things that uh, made me think about some other, other things and put me back into the thought process of what needs to happen. So thank you guys for coming on and, and providing the information that you provided tonight. And thank you for coming on and challenging some things that I need to challenge it on. And I hope Lane benefited uh, from that. And uh, thank you for your time. And for the audience, thank you for choosing to spend some of your time with us.